welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm here with Wendy, and we're excited to start another season because that means we're about to start another Camino. We are very excited indeed to be back, and uh, it hasn't been all that long since our last Camino, just a few months, so this is the shortest period of time that we've ever had in between two Caminos, but in some ways it's felt pretty long because we haven't done much <laughs> in terms of, you know, other travel or adventures and the kinds of things that we normally do. Yeah, you actually haven't left Lisbon once since we returned from the last Camino, which was about six months ago. Nope, I have not. And we've been in lockdown here in Portugal for a part of that time. So uh, there hasn't really been a lot to do or a lot of opportunities to, to explore or, or really to be out of the house even. No. So uh, things are looking up, though. Things were pretty bad here uh, two or three months ago, but case numbers are way down, and uh, we feel like the situation looks like it's pretty under control, and that walking a Camino, is, in Portugal at least, is something that we can do right now. And hopefully, by the time we make it to the border, the border will be open and we'll be able to go all the way to Santiago. All right, so we're going to reveal the Camino that we've chosen here in just a second. Um, but firstly, of course, we had a lot of plans for possible Caminos this year, as is, I guess, tradition for us and I think for everybody. When you're walking a Camino or when you come to the end of a Camino, you start thinking about the next one uh, that you'd like to do. And we had a few different plans and they all fell apart. Yeah. Um, but that tends to be the way that it goes, uh, you know, given the COVID situation. Um, our original plan for this year was to do what we were calling an epic Camino, uh, which would have gone from the south of Spain all the way to Santiago. We were going to walk the Camino Mozarabe from Almeria, and then we were going to uh, walk that until Merida, and then continue on the Via de la Plata, and then the Camino San Abres all the way to Santiago. And that would have been, I think, about two months in total. So that was our original plan. Um, yeah, and that would have been by far the biggest, the longest Camino that we've ever done. But we were thinking when we were planning that, that you know, it would be good to have a long Camino because we probably wouldn't have many other opportunities to travel in the ways that we normally do, you know, more international travel going further afield. So we were thinking that a, a long Camino would be a good idea. Uh, but even so, I think at the time when we were planning that, say, you know, shortly after we got back from our previous Camino, we probably thought that the situation would be better than it is at the point when we were ready to go out on Camino again. Yeah, definitely. We were hoping to start that Camino just after Easter, but it turned out that by the time that time came along, uh, the Portugal-Spain border was still closed. Spain was still in its state of alarm. There's perimetral... Um, lockdowns essentially within Spain and so it just wasn't feasible in any way shape or form so we had to give that one up. Our second idea was that we were going to wait a little bit longer and hopefully the, the border between Portugal and Spain would open and we would just walk the Camino Frances again mm -hmm. um, and we thought that would be interesting doing it in a holy year and at a time when because of the virus situation people coming from for example outside of the European Union wouldn't be able to come to Spain and so it would be interesting to walk you know, during summer or late spring and walking this famous route, the Camino Frances, but without too many other pilgrims. That was our idea for a while. Yeah, and that sounded like a good idea in theory. 
But that one also didn't work, mostly, again, because of these perimetral uh, lockdowns where you're not allowed to go from one region to another in Spain. So walking, you know, f through multiple regions is not an option. And again, the border is still closed. Uh, we did think that it would open, or we still think that it's going to open shortly. But at a certain point, uh, we just thought, well, there's no point uh, guessing when it might be open or when this might be possible. If there's another way that we can walk a Camino in the interim, then maybe we should just do that. And that's what we decided to do. Yep. And also, if we had done the Frances, then ideally we would have started in France, in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. Uh, which, you know, just adds another international border crossing into the mix. And so that would have been even more complicated than just going from region to region in Spain. So yeah, that was out. But we've come up with something else that we think is going to work. All right, so the Camino that we're going to walk is called the Camino Nascente in Portugal. And so this well, this is translated actually in, in English often to the Eastern Way, which is a little bit confusing for reasons we'll get to in a minute. Um, but it's a relatively newly established Camino, and it starts from Tavira, which is on the southern coast of Portugal in the Algarve, and then continues uh, north through Portugal in the eastern part of Portugal. It's quite an unknown Camino. There's actually very little information about it at all. Uh, and we didn't even know about it until probably only a few days before we actually chose to do it. Um, mm -hmm. We have the Wise Pilgrim map, or I have the Wise Pilgrim map with showing different Camino routes um, on my phone, and I like to look at it a lot. And they have a route which is called the Camino du Est, so the Eastern Camino. And so we'd kind of seen that on the map and, and always sort of thought, oh, that could be interesting without knowing anything about it at all. Once we began researching it, we sort of eventually found out that there were two Caminos, the Nascent and the Est. And of course, Camino du Est also in English basically is Eastern Camino, so it's a little bit confusing. And they basically run parallel to each other. And in some cases, they share some stages um, every now and then. So it's a little bit confusing. Um, and there's almost no information about the Nascent. Basically, we looked it up on the Camino de Santiago forums. There are over 55,000 threads on the forum, and there's exactly one that deals with the Camino Nascent. And that was a Spanish guy who walked six stages of it. So not even close to the, the whole thing. And he'd written a blog. And so he just made a post saying, here, I've got some information about these six stages. And that was it. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be pioneers this time. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to, you know, track this Camino and spread some information about it so that hopefully it's good and uh, other people will want to do it and we can help them to do that and show people how it's done. Right. And we also did find one other kind of blog of someone who seemed to have done it. And he was actually comparing the Nascent and the Est. Um, because from our perspective, we didn't know really anything about either of them. The Est was the one that was on the... Um, on our map. So that was kind of the one that we were going to choose. And he said that that was uh, a lot more difficult. There was a lot more road walking and the stages were longer and it was more suitable for cycling rather than for walking. And then he suggested the Nascent. And so then we decided, hey, let's do that. Yeah, because I am not down with road walking or super long distances. I've talked before about, you know, how I have this health problem with my feet that makes it painful to walk super long distances. So the kinds of distances that he was talking about, which were in some cases more than 40 kilometers in a day, I knew that that would destroy my feet and, and that was just not 
feasible. So I uh, was really happy to hear that there was this other option called the Nascent that we were completely unaware of. But now that we've looked into it a bit and based on the small amount of information that we have been able to find, um, it sounds really intriguing. And there are some things that I'm really looking forward to seeing along the way. Yeah, me too. And then the final uh, sort of wrinkle in in this idea was that there's actually another Camino in Portugal, which also has the same name and is called the Camino Nascent. And this is a completely different. Uh, it runs from Fatima back towards Tomar. It's a way of connecting the Caminos that go to Fatima with the Camino de Santiago. And that also has actually caused uh, another kind of issue as well. Um, and so basically this Camino Nascent that we're going to walk, it's not a so-called historical Camino. It's a newly developed Camino and it's been developed by the local governments uh, in the regions that it's in. And apparently this has caused a little bit of a, an issue because it was not done in consultation with the pilgrim associations that are active in Portugal. Um, and I mean, we don't really want to get involved too much in this, but, um, you know, we've heard from people who are involved in the associations that they're disappointed that they weren't consulted, that this is not a, a historical Camino and that it's more just a, a money-making exercise by the government, uh, rather than something that is, is, I don't know, I guess in the true spirit of the Camino. Um, so I'm not sure what exactly to think about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could see it both ways. We have walked a Camino before that was not a historical Camino. Uh, that was the Camino de Madrid. Um, so I guess that's not like a huge deciding factor for us. And there definitely are historical sites along the way. Um, whether or not this was a route that people walked in medieval times to get to Santiago, I don't know. It seems kind of odd to me that no one ever walked this route, um, you know, because people basically started from wherever they lived. They started from right outside their front door, as we did last year, last on our previous Camino when we started in, in Lisbon from our apartment. Um, you know, that's how it was done. And surely there were people who were living in the south of Portugal who, you know, walked the same path at some point. So I don't really know what you have to do to prove that a specific route is a historic Camino, Camino. but um, in any case, we're going to walk it. I think we're going to find lots of history. I, I have no doubt about that. And actually, a lot of history related to Santiago and the Order of Santiago as well, from what I've seen. Yeah, just to add on to, to that point, yeah, I think broadly speaking, you could perhaps say that there are two aspects of, of history on a Camino. There's, the first is just the historic sites that you pass along the way. These can be churches or castles or palaces, and you can see the, the cultural legacy of previous civilizations that, that have been in that area. Um, and then that's certainly something that we're going to see on this Camino. And then the second part is whether there's actually the history of the Camino. So if you're on the Camino Frances, for example, or the Camino Primitivo, uh, you can see ruins of pilgrim complexes from the Middle Ages. And so, yeah, that adds an extra element. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't that doesn't have to be the be all and end all of it. And certainly, Anywhere you're going to create a walking path in the Iberian Peninsula, you're going to have great historical sites and historical legacy that you're going to be walking through. Yeah, absolutely. And like you mentioned, the Order of Santiago is something that's important in southern Portugal as well. And actually, the best resource that we found for the Camino Nascent uh, is a 
a guidebook which has been produced in five different languages by the local government in the Alentejo region. The Alentejo is the largest of the regions of Portugal, but the most depopulated. It's basically the area between Lisbon and the Algarve. Uh, unfortunately, the guide only covers the stages that are in the Alentejo, because that's kind of all that they're interested in, and that's, I think, only about half or less than half of the Communion Ascent. Um, so there's, you know, day-by-day information. Yeah, really good information. Uh, just for this one kind of stretch of it, and then nothing for any of the other sections of it. Um, so we'll be, you know, flying by the seat of our pants a little bit from for the other sections, but we have a lot of good information just for several of these stages. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they do... Well, I think a good job in trying to showcase the historical aspects of the areas on this Camino, if not the actual Camino, and yeah, tying it to Santiago, to the Order of Santiago. And so the very beginning of this guide is is quite several pages talking about the Order of Santiago, which is, of course, one of the military orders that was established around the time of the Crusades to protect pilgrims. And they talk a lot about the role that the Order of Santiago had in the conquering of some of these areas in southern Portugal, where this Camino is, and you know the kind of legacy uh, of that. So just for example, to read uh, one of the sentences from this guide, it says, The Order of Santiago conquered much of the present Ta- uh, Tagus River's southern Portuguese territory and was essential in the settlement and socioeconomic planning of Alentejo and the Algarve's vast territory during the Middle Ages. And so what we also see with regard to that is that the cult of Santiago or the worship of Santiago was sort of diffused from Galicia down throughout Portugal. And this is something that we, of course, knew already, um, having been tour guides here in Lisbon. You know, what we see in the, in the very early decades of the development of Portugal is that it came out of a, a territory that was in Galicia. That was the original creation of the territory that would become Portugal. And so the people who were the first Portuguese were just Galician people. Mm-hmm. And then they gradually began to conquer south and they conquered down to Lisbon by 1147. But because they were from this northern area, Santiago was a very important saint for them. Mm-hmm. And so they established a community of worship of Santiago here in Lisbon. And so the first church of Santiago was built right after this time in the 12th century. And then that just continued as they conquered further south. And so you can see in Tavira, which is where we're going to start this Camino, there is a church of Santiago from the Middle Ages. And there are other places along this route. And there's a second route that, that's that been created as well, the so-called central route. And that also goes past uh, some towns that have churches dedicated to Santiago from the Middle Ages. And so you can see that the worship of Santiago in, in this southern part of Portugal is, is quite strong. Right. And so it's, you know, Santiago is the patron saint of Spain uh, and is so associated with Spain, but it's interesting to see how, uh, you know, he's an important saint here in Portugal as well. And then that's been spread throughout the whole country. And so that's really interesting um, to have that connection. So I think in this official guidebook that they've uh, released, they've tried hard to show that there is this connection with Santiago to make it seem like it's a worthwhile community to walk. Yeah. And it it seems very clear that there is that close connection, which goes back to, you know, as you were talking about the the connection between Portugal and Galicia. Um, I mean, we now think of Galicia as being part of Spain, but originally that was its own kingdom. And, you know, Portugal, the way it started was was part of that. And then it eventually got its own independence. 
Um, so yeah, it seems pretty clear to me that there are very strong ties. And like I said, it's the more I think about it and the more we talk about it, it seems quite odd that there would not be any pilgrims in medieval ages walking this route. But anyway, whether they did or not, we're going to. And I think there's going to be lots to discover along the way. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. And so the, the Communion Ascent, it starts from the Algarve, and then it goes through the Alentejo, as we mentioned, and it continues further north. And then the end of it is a town called uh, Trancosu, and it just kind of stops there. That's still in Portugal. So our plan is to walk all the way up to almost this point, and then when we get to a town called Guarda, there is a that's a shared stop with the Camino do Este that we mentioned earlier, and then we can switch to the Camino do Este for about another seven stages, and that goes all the way to the north of Portugal, and the border town is called Chaves, uh, which means keys. Mm -hmm. And we've actually been to this town before. We went with my parents a few years ago, just randomly. Um, we've been to a few places that are on this Camino before. We, ha we have, and we can talk a little bit about that uh, as we go. Uh, and then... From Chavez, if the border is open, we can cross, and then that crosses into Spain and directly into Galicia, and then the town uh, on the Galician side is called? Berin. Berin, and that's on an alternative route of the Camino San Abres, and then you can walk that to Orense, and then join up with the main route of the Camino San Abres, and that can take us to Santiago. So that is our plan. Of course, again, we don't know if the border exactly will be open or if Spain will be uh, welcoming pilgrims at that time. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then it, we can go as far as we can go in Portugal, and then we can just come home. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of unknowns. You know, Portugal has been in lockdown for months now and is gradually opening up. But, uh, you know, that's being taken on a case-by-case -case basis. So there are some, uh, well, they're called concelhos in Portuguese, small regions, I guess it would be the equivalent of a county maybe in the United States. Um, some counties have, you know, taken a step back. So we're now in Lisbon, we're in phase three, I believe, of the opening up after the full on lockdown. Uh, but there are some, we'll say counties that uh, have had to stay in phase two without moving ahead to phase three. And there were some that had to actually take a step back and go back to phase one. Um, and that involves perimetral lockdowns where you're not allowed to leave those counties. So if one of one or more of the counties on our route um, has to go back into lockdown, then that could be tricky. Um, but we'll, you know, cross that bridge when we come to it, if we come to it. Um, hopefully that's not going to happen. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, and there's only four of these counties, and the counties are very small, that have gone back into lockdown. Actually, one of them is on the route of the Camino do Este, um, but none of them are on the route of the Camino Nascente. So for now, we, uh, we should be okay. Um, as long as uh, you know, as long as the situation doesn't worsen and get back to where it was a few months ago. So tomorrow we're heading to Tavira, and then we're going to spend a couple of days there, and then we're going to start walking. Um, and so, just as a way of finishing off this episode, we'll talk about a few of the things that we're looking forward to, and then we'll see what happens as we actually walk the Camino. If those are the things that we enjoyed the most, or if there are other things that we had no idea about um, by the time we finish. So what are you looking forward to? 
All right. Well, first of all, I am just looking forward to being on Camino, just walking. I almost don't care where, you know, um, I would have gone anywhere. Um, but having now, you know, done a bit of research, there are some specific things on this route that I am really looking forward to. Um, some that we have been to before, um, particularly Mertola, which is a city that's famous for its Islamic heritage. And we actually went to the Islamic festival there a few years ago, which is held every two years, and uh, really enjoyed that experience. But I'm very much looking forward to going back and seeing the town outside of that festival period, because the festival kind of really takes over the whole town. And it's great. It's a great atmosphere. You know, there are all these stalls, vendors set up everywhere and everything. But because of that, you can't really see, you know, what the town looks like, the layout and stuff. And uh, the church, for example, was originally a mosque and was then later converted into a Christian church. And it still has some elements from when it was a mosque, the, the mihrab, for example, that points the direction towards Mecca is still there. Um, I do remember that. I remember going inside and seeing that, but I don't really remember what the outside of the church looks like because I think it was kind of covered by all these tarps and everything. So I definitely want to go back and see Mertola. Yeah, I think it's a whitewashed church typical of, of southern Portugal. Um, actually, it was interesting just a few weeks ago before we'd even decided to walk the Camino Nascente or, or even probably heard of it at that point. Um, I wrote something for the uh, for the website the spirit of the Camino.com about the best Islamic sites or the best Islamic architecture to enjoy on the Camino de Santiago because it's something that I'm really interested in and obviously in some of the southern routes in Spain you're passing uh, places like the Alhambra in Granada and the Mesquita in Córdoba which are these incredible world famous sites but just at the end of the article I put in Mertola as uh, mm -hmm. a place where you can see Islamic heritage in Portugal and that actually leads me on to my one of the things I was going to talk about um, as something that I'm looking forward to is just this Islamic heritage in general. I know it's a bit unusual when you're on a, a Christian pilgrimage to, to come across this, but that's part of the heritage of the Middle Ages in the Iberian Peninsula, both in Spain and in Portugal. And so you can't really tell the story of either of, of these countries, or they weren't even really understood as countries at that time. You can't tell the story of this area of the world at that time period without um, the story of the Muslim presence in the Iberian Peninsula for nearly eight centuries and here in Portugal for about five and a half centuries. And in the south of Spain, you have all these incredible Muslim sites. And here in Portugal, we don't have many at all. But it's something that I'm always, I've always been really interested in. And when I was giving tours in Lisbon, I would always try to talk about this. And people were always stunned. I, I would start my tours uh, at, at, a, at a certain point, right at the beginning of my tours by saying that Lisbon was a Muslim city for four and a half centuries and people would be really surprised at that. Uh, and so we don't have a lot of visual reminders of that. And so most of the visual reminders we do have are in the southern part of Portugal. So I'm looking forward to seeing what we can find there. Uh, Merchola, like you mentioned, there's another village called Mesquita, which is the Portuguese and Spanish word for mosque. Mm -hmm. uh, and even in Tavira, where we're going tomorrow to start the Camino, there's an Islamic uh, museum there. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what there is there. And in fact, just a few days ago here in Lisbon, we went to a temporary exhibition, which was also about, um, it was about Islam and Christianity and their roles in the birth of Portuguese nationhood. So it is all kind of tied together, but I, I feel that, especially here in Portugal, that uh, Islamic story is just left out of the, the overall story uh, a bit too often. Mm -hmm. 
And so it'll just be interesting to see that. And, you know, last year we walked the main Camino Portugues from Lisbon. And so we saw a lot of Portugal starting from the central part here in Lisbon and then going up to the north. But then we, of course, didn't see any parts of the south. Now, we've been to some of these places and some of these regions before, but to really walk the entire length of Portugal from the south to the north, we're going to see these changes and we're going to see maybe some impact uh, of the Muslim presence in Portugal in the first part, in the southern part of the Camino. And then as we walk further and further north, we'll be, I think, further removed from that. And so that'll be interesting to see those changes in, in the culture and the society as we go. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm really looking forward to really walking the full length of Portugal from the south coast all the way up to the border in the north. And I think we'll really have, you know, a very good idea of what this country is all about by the time we're finished. Uh, one thing in particular that I think we haven't seen much of yet in the other areas of the country that we've walked through and that we are going to see this time is cork trees. Um, because cork is a very, you know, it's a major export of Portugal. It's a really big industry here. Uh, in Lisbon, you have, you know, tourist souvenir shops that are selling anything you can imagine made out of cork. Um, and we've walked through all kinds of different landscapes. We've walked through lots of olive groves and vineyards, um, the fig trees. But I don't remember really walking through cork forests or cork plantations. And I think that's because they're mostly around the Alentejo and, you know, the southern areas. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Right. And another thing that I was thinking about was that we're quite focused here on this early part of the Camino. And I think that's kind of natural when you're planning, you're kind of looking at the first week or, or whatever it happens to be. And because we're familiar with some of these places, Mertola, you mentioned that we've been to, Beja, we've been to, um, Tavira, I've been to, you haven't, Evera, I've mm -hmm. been to. And when we get to Evera, that'll be about day 11. And this is a really nice town. It's just a couple of hours uh, east of Lisbon. And we've been there a few times and you've given tours there. Mm -hmm. um, but north of Evera for the next few hundred kilometers, it's a region of Portugal in this kind of central eastern region that we've never been to and don't really know a lot about. And so I'm looking forward to just seeing what it's like. Yeah. I don't know if there's any highlight places or things to see, but, and, and again, because there's so, so little information about this Camino, uh, once you get north of the Alentejo, we don't really know what's there. Um, but we're happy just to walk in Portugal and just to see what it's like and talk to people and discover more about the country that we live in. Yeah, it's true. We don't know much about that area at all. And as I was looking at the map and just looking at the names of the towns and the villages that we would be passing through to try to see if any of them sounded familiar, uh, there was really only one that I thought kind of rung a bell and I wasn't sure why. And it's called Estremoz. And uh, so I looked it up and apparently what it's famous for is clay figurines. They're called bonecos de estremos, like literally dolls, estremos dolls. Um, and then I found a quote from José Saramago talking about these dolls in estremos, um, who is a, a very famous writer in Portugal. We actually walked through his hometown, his home village, Azinaga, on our previous Camino, and that was one of the highlights for me. And I, the first work I ever read of his was years and years ago, 
Uh, I actually read a Spanish translation that I happened to stumble across when we were traveling somewhere. I don't remember where, but I picked it up in a book exchange somewhere. And it was a, a story about someone who made clay figurines. So now I'm thinking that that could have been set in Estremoz. And uh, even if the story is not set there, I'm sure that that must have influenced him. So that'll be something interesting to see when we pass through there. Yeah, definitely. I had no idea about any of that. Um, and then if we are able to cross into Spain and into Galicia, I'm sure that's another thing that you're very much looking forward to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should mention Galicia. Like you said, uh, we're mostly focused on the early stages right now, and that Galicia seems so far away. But yeah, um, I did talk in the last season when we did our episode about languages on the Communion Portuguese. I talked about my dabbling into the Galician language in Galego. Uh, didn't really anticipate how far down that rabbit hole I was going to go, but man, yeah, I, I really dove in and um, I've been immersed in Galego for the past few months, really. Um, reading a lot and listening to podcasts and, you know, watching um, audiovisual stuff and and just recently starting to speak. I'm doing some online um, chats with um, with native Galician people and also with other people who are learning Galician. Uh, and my uh, goal is to translate Galician literature into English. That's kind of what I'm working up towards. So yeah, it's suddenly become a really big part of my life. And yeah, it all started really with the last Camino when I was during the, you know, the lockdown and pandemic, I, I got back into language learning, which has always been a big love of mine, but kind of put it on the back burner for the past few years and was really getting back into languages. And because we were going on Camino and we're going to be going to Galicia, I thought, oh, well, why don't I learn a few phrases in Galego and then try to use them when we're there? And that'll be fun, you know, to learn a language that I'm actually going to be able to use. And that was the only travel of any kind that we had lined up. So it was an obvious choice. Um, but I really didn't think that I was going to take it this far. And now I have, and I didn't really use those phrases very much. I kind of chickened out uh, most of the time because I didn't speak the language very well at all. And, and I did speak Spanish and I knew that they were also fluent in Spanish, all of the people who I was trying to communicate with. So it was just much easier to do everything in Spanish. Yeah, you were just saying to people, I think in Spanish, oh, you can speak Galego and I understand a little bit of it, but I'll just speak to you back in Spanish. <laughs> I mean, there were a few times when people did speak to me in Galego, and I was, I think it was mostly because I said that I was from Portugal or was living in Portugal, and so they thought, okay, well, then you'll understand Galego better than Spanish, because Galego is quite close to Portuguese, um, and I was quite happy to let them, you know, be confused about my actual citizenship or nationality or whatever. But yeah, I didn't, I couldn't have conversations at that point. And now I can. So that's something that I'm super excited about is uh, actually speaking Galego and yeah, re-experiencing Galego as a Galego speaker for the first time. All right. But before we get there, we have to slog through like a month of Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's all right. I'll still be listening to my Galego podcast here and there along the way. All right. Anything else that you're looking forward to? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple more things. Oh, well, 
Okay, well, two things. One I just found really interesting. Again, like I said, I was just looking at the names of towns and villages to see if anything rang a bell. And one that I noticed was a village named Cuba or Cuba. And I thought, okay, that's interesting that there's a place named Cuba in Portugal. I was not aware. Do you know the story of, well, supposedly the connection and, and why that name is known to us today? Uh, I think you did tell me, but I've completely forgotten, so you may tell again. Um, well, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, controversial and not necessarily proven, but some people think that that is actually the birthplace of Christopher Columbus, that Columbus was Portuguese, and uh, he was working as a spy for the Portuguese king to infiltrate into the Spanish royal court. And uh, so he actually named the island of Cuba, of Cuba, after his hometown. And apparently there are some, some other names, thing, you know, place names that he named in the Caribbean and, and Latin America that are also related to places in the Alentejo. So I have no idea how true that is, but I just thought it was intriguing when I learned about it. Definitely. And also just occurred to me that the second city of Cuba is called Santiago de Cuba. Oh. Uh... <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> All right. And then I'll give one more thing. And I don't know because of the current situation whether we'll be able to experience this or not. But I did read... That in the Alentejo, because again, that's the region that we know the most about because we have this really great guidebook that so hats off to the Alentejo region, regional government. Thank you for all of the great information. Um, apparently, there are lots of very traditional taverns in Alentejo where people go to drink and to socialize. And, um, you know, it's a... Uh, in normal times, a very convivial atmosphere, and a lot of times people will break out spontaneously into song, and they will sing Canto Alentejano, which is um, as a particular form of song that is sung in, in the Alentejo region, and it's actually listed as a UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage, along with Faru, um, another type of song, which I believe we've talked about before, which is very famous here in Lisbon, and I absolutely love going to taverns or pubs, tascas they're called, and and listening to Faro. So I would really love to have that experience in the Alentejo listening to Canto Alentejano. Again, I don't know if that's going to be happening or not because of the current situation, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and just a couple of things about that is firstly, we went to a Faro uh, performance once here and they also sung Canto Alentejano. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we have heard a little bit of it before and it's it's really interesting and it's something, yeah, we'd love to hear again. And, you know, the fortunate thing now is that we're coming out of lockdown and so now restaurants and bars are, are open. During the first kind of phase of the opening up, it was just for outdoor seating. Uh, subsequently now, it, they're also open for indoor seating with a certain uh, limit on capacity. But um, yeah, so you never know. Hopefully we'll be able to see and hear some of that while we're there. I hope so. We'll see. We'll just see what happens. Whatever happens, I will be happy. I will just be happy to be on Camino. Um, but yeah, these are just a few things that I've learned about very recently in our last minute research and um, I'm looking forward to maybe experiencing them in person. All right. So we'll be back soon with some tales from the Camino Nascente. Mm -hmm. So until then, bon Camino. And buen Camino.
Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.